Amen. Thanks, JB. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but he's really good at that stuff. Uh, he is definitely a blessing to our church family. Um, so let's go Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab it real quick. Uh, it's okay to run across your house to go find it. I mean, come on, your house isn't that big. It won't take you but half a second. All right, so if you have a Bible, grab it. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We'll put our text for the morning up on your screen in just a moment. Uh, but if you do have a copy of God's Word, man, I'd encourage you to, to, to go grab that as we uh, and open it up as we look at it together. Uh, it's not that we hate on uh, you know the electronic versions. I use an electronic Bible most of my week. All right, it's just that I think that God does something special as we're holding His Word as it's being declared, and so uh, we don't want you to miss out on that. And so if you have a Bible of your own, grab it. Matthew chapter ten. So we are a month and a half deep now into a series that we're calling The Gospel is a Blank. And, and the plan is to, to plug a different word or phrase into that blank each week. The Gospel is a blank. The Gospel is this. The Gospel is a that. All right? And so uh, the, the reasoning that's propping up this idea is that, that I happen to think that one of the best ways to illustrate the Gospel, or we can say it this way, uh, to, to give picture to the good news of what God is and has and is doing, is doing and will be doing all those things, one of the best ways to illustrate the gospel is to talk about it like it's a diamond. A diamond. And, and, and we all kind of get what a, what a diamond is. Uh, it's a sight to, to behold, right? Uh, whether you can, you've got a real one on your finger right now and you can just look down or maybe you just picture, like imagine a cartoon one in your head. We all can kind of get a sense of what a diamond is and what a diamond is for. It's, it's meant to be marveled at. We all, we, the purpose of a diamond is just to kind of enjoy it and, and behold it. And, and it's cut in, in such a way that the facets, they all complement each other and elevate the value of the whole gem. That's what a diamond does. The correct way to look at a diamond is to hold it up, spin that sucker around, and if your heart has been captured by Jesus, to stand in awe of the God who saw fit to give such a cre- an incredible gift. That's the purpose of a diamond. Diamonds are impressive, man. They really are, but <laughs> the cosmic diamond maker, he's a little bit more impressive. In the gospel, we, we think the gospel is the same way. Several facets, several ways that we can spin uh, this thing around and marvel at it. The facets, they're not in competition with each other. They're not, they're not jockeying for uh, facet number one and facet number two. No, they elevate and serve and, and help to magnify each other and magnify the whole gem. And every bit of it, every bit of it is, is intended to point us back to the goodness of the giver. He is truly magnificent. He is unparalleled. Yes, his gospel jewel is a sight to behold, but have you seen the maker of this diamond? And so over the course of this series so far, we spent a lot of time looking at all these different facets, and we spun the gospel diamond around, and we celebrated each side. And last week, last week, a week ago now, we looked at how the gospel is a present reality, a present reality, that the gospel is not just something that has happened to you, it's also something that is happening to you. Yes and amen, we are saved, past tense, by grace through faith. Justification is a word that we looked at a lot in our Roman series uh, a season ago now. Justification is a finished work in you. There's nothing left to declare. The sin that separated you from God has been paid for in full by Jesus' death on the cross. And Jesus' perfect righteousness has been credited to you. 
And because of that, Christian, you now stand blameless, completely blameless before God the Father. The gospel is most assuredly a past tense reality, but the Bible also teaches, we discovered last week, that there's still a work being done in you. Our God is working in us today and and in all the days to come until he brings us home. He's working in you to root out your sin, to root out your indwelling unrighteousness, and to bring you into holiness. He is actively, and we, we also learned last week, joyfully working in this moment to make you look more and more and more like him. He is holy, and that he's, that's exactly what he's drawing you into. And that's where we left things off last week. But oh, church family, the gospel can yet be spun again. So what facet do we get to celebrate this morning? The gospel is a call to suffer. A call to suffer. And you might be thinking to yourself right now, does he understand what celebrate means? Like he said celebrate. I don't think he understands what celebrate means. Hey, Woodard, you you know that celebration and suffering, they don't go together. They're not friends, right? At least, at least not within this, the realm of earthly sensibilities. What do you normally think of when you think of suffering? Like what, what pops into your head? Maybe, maybe for you, suffering is something that happens a long way away from you, something, something far away that you only ever really see on the news. Maybe that's what you think of when you think of suffering. You think of starvation, or maybe you think of slavery, or, or maybe you think of oppressive government somewhere, somewhere else, right? And, and so maybe even you do some things to help alleviate that suffering of some kind. You volunteer or you donate uh, to various kinds of causes. Bravo, congratulations. We actually encourage that kind of stuff around here. Uh, that, maybe that's what you think of when you think of suffering. Maybe others, though, when you think of suffering, you think of your own situation. Whether it's the fallout of COVID realities, or, or maybe life is just kind of kicking you in the rear right now. Or, or for some of you, some of you, you've been walking through persistent suffering for years now. Years. Don't call it a comeback, right? We have several dear people in our church family who have wrestled with and endured different types of suffering throughout their lives chronic pain, multiple bouts with cancer, the physical effects of battling and fighting off addiction, heartache from the loss of loved ones. I mean, it's Mother's Day, right? For a lot of people, this is a really big day to celebrate. It's good and right to do so, but it's also at the very same time a day that's really hard on some folks. It's a really tough day for some, painful even. For those who are walking through infertility, or those who have lost a child. Maybe just for those who have recently lost their mother. This is a very painful day for some. Suffering, man, it touches us all. For, for many, it comes in cycles, in ways. For a lot of people, it's every day. It's all the time. I think if you look at the world with any kind of intellectual honesty at all, man, it doesn't take long to figure out that this place is broken. It's obviously broken. Sometimes suffering occurs because the sin-shattered world that we're living in bears its full weight upon you. Romans 8, right? It suffers under the pangs of childbirth. Sometimes, though, sometimes though suffering occurs because sinful actors intentionally and unjustly cause that suffering on others. That's also absolutely true. 
And so how in the world could we possibly celebrate such a thing? I mean, doesn't that sound just absolutely ridiculous on the surface? What are you talking about, Woodard? Celebrate? You kidding me? Well, we've been saying throughout this series now, and I, I even repeated it this morning, that, that each facet plays off of and magnifies the beauty of all the others. And so in the last two weeks, we've talked about how the gospel is a present reality that roots out your sin in such a way that everybody around you thinks is absolutely ridiculous, in such a way that everybody around you doesn't understand why you're going to such ex- extreme lengths. We've also talked about, looked at how the gospel is a mission that calls you to live as an ambassador of a better, holy kingdom. And, and, if, and I promise you, if, if you celebrate and pursue those two realities in their fullness, you will undoubtedly stand in stark contrast to the rest of the world around you. Take it to the bank. You will look different. You can't help it. If you take Jesus seriously and you walk deeply in those two realities that he calls his people to walk in, you will stand out like a sore thumb in this world. And those of you who have been around long enough to know the simple truth that our, our world doesn't deal with contrast well. They don't exactly like people who stick out like a sore thumb. And that leads us to our text for the morning, Matthew chapter 10. So if you haven't studied the book of Matthew before, it's, it's structured in a really interesting way, I think. It's organized in a really neat way. Um, it's not chronological. Uh, uh, it's, not, it's not a report of Jesus did this, and then Jesus did this, and then Jesus did this. Chronology is there. It's, it's, it's certainly there. There's, there's a driving narrative there. But Matthew, he organizes things in a little bit, with a little bit more artistry. Uh, he organizes things with five major discourses. All right? So he, he toggles back and forth between telling us what Jesus said, and then showing us what Jesus did. Back and forth, back and forth. All right, and so he's got these five main groupings of discourse. And the first one is the one that everybody is familiar with. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. All right, and so in the Sermon on the Mount, that's Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus answers the question, who are the citizens of his kingdom and how are they supposed to live? That's the question he answers in the first discourse. The second of those five discourses happens in Matthew chapter 10. And there, Jesus answers the question, how are his, are his disciples supposed to act while, he's, while they're doing what he has commanded them to do? In other words, as he sends them out, what can they expect and what, how should they respond to what they experience? And so at the beginning of Matthew, uh, at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 10, Matthew gives us a, a complete list of the apostles, and then Jesus sends them out. He sends the 12 out to travel the countryside, house to house, village to village, and they are tasked with sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. That's, the, that's their job as he sends them out on a little mission trip. Jesus tells them what supplies to take and, and even how long they're supposed to stay somewhere before they move on to the next place. But before they go, well, he's got one last thing to bring up, a, a kind of a, oh yeah, by the way, this is what you're going to experience when you get there kind of conversation. So he says this in verse 16, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So let's call a time out there. All right, so, so say what now? Sheep in the midst of wolves, you say. That sounds pleasant. 
Um, so uh, I, I've spent some time around sheep, not a lot, but enough, I would say, uh, more than I would actually prefer to spend. Uh, like sheep aren't exactly the best company, but I've spent some time around sheep, and I can tell you with my now expert opinion that they are fluffy meat sacks. That's what they are. They're quite delicious. It's about all they're good for. Unfortunately, I have not spent much time around wolves, so I can't speak with expertise there, but I've watched enough Life Below Zero and National Geographic to know that you don't really want to mess with the wolf. I mean, sure, if you've got a big gun, the odds are closer in your favor, but sheep, they don't have guns, man. They just don't. When sheep and wolves find themselves in the same place at the same time, it very, very rarely goes well for the sheep. It almost never goes bad for the wolf. Jesus is getting his apostles ready to send them out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, right? That's stuff we, we like gather the church together and sing some songs and pray some big prayers and ask God to bless in big ways. Yeah, we're sending them out on mission. And then he makes it explicitly clear that he is intentionally sending them into danger. Danger. He is knowingly and purposefully sending them into a situation where things may go really, really bad. And I know that saying that out loud is going to cause some dissonance in some folks because, well, because you view, your view of God is, is really nothing more than a benevolent grandpa figure. He calls you sport, hands out a Werther's original every once in a while, but really he just wants to keep you safe and make sure you flourish in life. Jesus, he doesn't seem very interested in playing it safe here. In fact, sometimes he sends his ambassadors to go say very, very difficult things in very, very wicked kingdoms. And still, some, some may be thinking, yeah, well, I mean, yes, but like he does send us into potential danger, but we don't have anything to worry about, right? Like, nothing can touch God's anointed. We'll be fine. We'll be okay. But look at what he says next. Behold, I am sending you out in, as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So there are places in the Bible that teach that God's people will sometimes walk through dangerous circumstances unharmed untouched even. That's, that's Psalm 23, if you're familiar with that. Uh, Though I walk through the valley of a shadow of death, I will fear no evil, right? Later on that Psalm, he says that God sets a table for me in the presence of my enemies. There's almost a swagger to the tone. But there are also places in the Bible, like here in Matthew 10, where persecution and suffering are promised outright for God's people. We are to expect that they will happen. Yes, sometimes because of the brokenness of this world, it does affect us all. But here Jesus says, for my name's sake. He says, persecution will come because you are associated with me. Count on it. You will be mocked. You will be physically harmed. The courts might get involved. It's coming. And if that sounds completely preposterous to you... I, I would lovingly submit that that might be because you don't have a very good grasp at how the church operates on a global scale. 
step out of Western world, step out of the social structures we've built, step out of the protections that we live and operate under, and the realities of suffering and persecution for God's people become a significantly more relevant conversation. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ don't talk about persecution in theoretical terms. It's an everyday thing for them, both in history past and in uh, different parts of the world today. Make no mistake about it. King Jesus and his otherworldly kingdom are a threat to every lesser power in this world. Whether they know it or not, whether they fight against it or not, the Bible promises that every knee will bow. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to, glory, to the glory of God the Father. And because of that reality, because of that eternal truth, guys, it really shouldn't surprise us at all when, the, when lesser powers in this world lash out and do everything they can to try to hang on to their futile attempts at glory. Feeble excuse for power. Follower of Jesus, ambassador for Christ. You have not been sent to a friendly and unhostile nation. You haven't. Some nations may very well be less hostile than others, but no matter where God has put you, our calling is to proclaim a kingdom that is intentionally upside down from the wisdom and the power structures of this world. That's our job. It's also the only kingdom that will remain standing when Jesus draws this portion of history to a close. And when you and I walk faithfully in that calling, you will sometimes, and maybe even a lot of the time, you will receive backlash for that. You will. In fact, it's actually quite a normal thing to expect. Get used to it. But something wonderful and God-glorifying also comes on the, on the heels of that backlash. Look at verse 18 again. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, comma, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Okay, so the word there for Gentiles is the word ethnos. Uh, we, we've used it to, uh, here it's used to draw a distinction between the Jews and other groups, non-Jews, right? Otherwise known as the Gentiles. But ethnos just means peoples. Matthew uses the same word later in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, when he says, Go there and make disciples of all nations, all people groups, ethnos. Right? And so uh, Jesus is saying here, uh, the immediate application was that the Jewish authorities persecuting them would drag them to the Roman officials, the Roman authorities, because it was the Romans' job to, uh, to carry out judicial punishment. The Jews weren't allowed to do that. They had no power. They had cultural clout, but they couldn't actually punish someone, and so they had to drag them to the Roman authorities. The same thing happened with Jesus when he was crucified, right? The, the leaders of the uh, of the, of the Sanhedrin had to bring them to, to Pilate in order for Pilate to put him to death, all right? And so they have to draw them, bring them to the Roman officials, and they had to present a case for why that person needed to be punished. But Jesus says here that when they do that, that means that you have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to them too. You get to tell them not only your persecutors, but also those surrounding your persecutors about your Jesus. You get to proclaim the gospel to the nations. 
Hear me clearly, church family. It is often through the persecution of God's people that our God opens the doors for everybody else to hear the gospel. Let us never forget that. It is through the darkest suffering that God's church has often made the greatest strides for advancing his kingdom. And this is why we always pick on the prosperity gospel in here. It's it's because it's literally the opposite of what seems to be God's call in our lives according to texts like this one. If your theology can't account for God-ordained suffering, your best case scenario is that you're only reading half the Bible. And that's best case scenario. More likely than not, though, what's really happening is that you're teaching an anti-gospel that's going to end up a lot of people in in hell. Well-intentioned people, even. When we talk about success as a church, for good and for ill, there there are all these different metrics that people like to hold up as as these grand showings of blessing. And and so if you want to look at resources or the size of our buildings, uh, our church, churches in the West, man, man, we, we, we look pretty awesome. We look really good, actually. But if you want to judge success by people taking up their cross and following Jesus, you know, the, the thing that probably ought to be at the top of our list of metrics, well, you don't look here. You, you don't look here. You, you look where Christians have historically have had it the hardest. You look there and you will find people who have seriously considered the cost of following Jesus and then at great risk to themselves, at great risks to their livelihoods, they have willingly and joyfully submitted to King Jesus as Savior and Lord. And just between you and me and the internet, like when you come to Jesus in those kinds of environments, you don't tend to worry about all the other things that so easily sideline the rest of us. They're non-issues to you. You carry a much different estimation of things into your accounting and into your calling. But let's say for a moment that we're all in. Let's say that that that's not something we struggle with. Let's say that we're all in 100%. Let's say that even though we don't face, uh, stare down, higher level persecution in our day and age and in our culture, uh, in our country on a regular basis, even though we don't face those things with any kind of normalcy, let's say for a second that we all understand that this is coming for us eventually, that it's one day going to be our story and our reality too. And so how do we prepare for such an occasion? How do we prepare for that eventual day? What do we do? How do we, how do we get ready. Well, not only does Jesus say be wise and innocent, but he also gives us some more advice in verse 19. Verse 19, he says this, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Verse 20, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Happy Mother's Day. Verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through it, uh, through all the towns of Israel, before the Son of Man comes. Okay, so Jesus pretty clearly says right here that as long as you can avoid persecution, do so. Do so. Move from town to town. You're, not, you're there to preach the gospel of the kingdom, but you're, if your life's in danger, pick up your stuff, go to the next place. 
Moving to the next town is not wrong. That's not out of bounds. We don't invite suffering and persecution. We don't puff up our chest at it as if, as if it's nothing to us. But there is a very real sense in which we seek to avoid it. But the reality is, is that you can't avoid it forever. Not if, you're, not if we're doing what King Jesus has called us to do. It'll eventually come. And so when it does, Jesus says, hey, don't spend all your time worrying about what you're going to say. Well, why not? He says, because I'm there with you. And I'm going to speak through you. Church family, we, we talk in here often about doing whatever we can to get us just a little bit more of Jesus. It turns out that um, Jesus promises here that persecution is actually a really great way of getting you a whole lot of Jesus. It gives you more of himself in that moment. We don't invite suffering and persecution. We're not going around looking for it, but let's not swing the pendulum all the way in the other direction and act like it's the worst thing that could happen to us. Oh, wait a second, Woodard. Jesus said death. Like, I, I saw it. You read it. He said death. He, he used the word death. That is the worst thing that could happen to us. You sure about that? Let's keep reading. Verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, that's a nickname for Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus says that when you're persecuted, remember that in that moment, you look a little bit more like me. You look like me. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was unfairly maligned. Jesus was put to death by the hands of wicked men. He literally suffered the most unjust execution in all of history. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer unfairly. He gets it. He really does. Oh yeah, and he's also beaten death itself and offered up just a handful of promises about resurrection life. But let's keep reading verse 26. He says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay, so uh, National Baptist Church. Fearing death is not wrong. It's not. It really is not. It's okay, and it's understood. It's a part of our nature. We kind of ought to fear death in one sense. Fearing death is not wrong, but there is something that should be feared way more than death. The Apostle Paul calls death our greatest enemy in this life. But we are not merely mortal creatures. That is not all we are. We have eternal realities coursing through us and we await an eternal judgment by an infinitely holy judge. And so fearing earthly, temporary persecutors more than that judge, more than our God and what he has called us to, guys, it definitely places our priorities in the wrong location. Yes, our persecutors may do grave harm. Grave harm up to and including death itself. But that is precisely where their influence and their authority ends. After that, they are powerless. And 
there is one high and lifted up in the heavens. And the Bible says that he rules long, long after death. And nothing your persecutor does in secret will stay secret forever. Nothing. Not only will it be made known, but we are also promised all throughout the Bible that it will be completely rectified with infinite and perfect justice. The just judge, the king of glory, will give to all exactly what they deserve, exactly what they are owed. Yeah, I get that. Like, yeah, of course he's just. Of course he writes terrible wrongs. But, but, I mean, does he really care about little old me? Like, surely he's spending all of his time, like, worried about the major injustices in our world, working on the big stuff, you know, poverty and sex trafficking and the Holocaust and people who put ketchup on steak. You know, the big stuff. We'll look at verse 29. Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. Verse 33, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Follower of Jesus, the one who willingly sends you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves is the very same one who holds you in his good and sovereign hands. He is the one who knows every intimate detail of every bird in the sky. And oh yeah, you as his adopted child are just a smidge more valuable to him than the, than the birds. He loves you more than the sparrows. If he's got the sparrows, you're okay. You're okay. Yes, persecution is costly, but look at who holds you in his hands as you walk through it. Look at who's making promises not only for today, but for what comes on the other side of that persecution. Church family, the gospel the life of following your trustworthy king who laid his own life down and then picked it back up again, the gospel is a call to suffer. A call to suffer. But not in vain. Not without profit. That suffering is indeed painful. No one thinks otherwise. We're not naive in this. But at the very same time, <laughs> at the very same time, an amazing and unmatched tool for the cause of our gospel mission is buried within it. And it is at the very same time something that shapes you into the image of Jesus and his suffering. It is at the very same time something that Jesus uses to give you more and more and more of himself today. And it just might be, if that persecution is bad enough, it just might be the vehicle that our good God uses to finally bring you home and put you right there with him forever. To finally bring you home. We do not chase suffering. We do not invite persecution. We will gladly walk as faithfully as we are able without it. Make, but make no mistake about this. If our God chooses to allow suffering to come our way, I promise you, it will be by his hand and it will be for our good. We may not taste it today. Probably not. At least I hope not. But if we do happen to taste it tomorrow, it will be because our God loves us. It won't be because he lost control. It will be because our God loves us. And he wants us to, he wants more for us than what we walked through the day before.
You can't slow God down. You kidding me? Even persecutions and sufferings raining down on us by our enemies is nothing more than a tool in his hands for our good and for his glory. So let us spin the gospel diamond this week and celebrate. And yes, the word is celebrate. Let us celebrate how marvelous our God is and let us celebrate what he has done and what he is doing even through suffering. If you're watching this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, that's, that's your response, right? We call people every week to respond to God's word, and this is how we respond today. We celebrate, whether, whether in the midst of persecution or just the potential for future persecution, we celebrate. Can I ask the tougher question, though? What, is, what has God called you to that for fear of man issues you, you haven't acted on? I mean, don't mishear me. I'm not talking about being brash or about forcing something that's unwise or unhelpful. I think Jesus is in favor of you uh, respecting the moment that he's placed in front of you. There, there are real needs to consider about time and place and opportunity, but, uh, but we've already talked about all that stuff before. And, well, I think this is a safe place to be honest, or, or at least I hope it is. And I don't think that those are the issues that we struggle with most of the time. I don't. At least not in the American church. I think we're, we're more worried about what it's going to cost us culturally. Not even physical fear. We're, we're more worried about perception and cultural pressure. And, and, and it would be easy right now to point to celebrities and athletes and stuff like that who claim to be Christian and then don't stand up for Jesus. God, it takes a much more mature heart to point the finger at ourselves and say, I'm guilty of this. I bend under the slightest bit of pressure. But Jesus seems to assume here that, that as his followers, there are going to be times where we consistently find God, ourselves in much more. We're doing what he told us to do. There seems to be times where it's going to cost us something. It seems to be built that way by design. And no one wants you to be a jerk for Jesus, I think including Jesus. But if you don't have any of those moments at all, that might be an indicator of something else. Jesus says in Luke 6, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for so their fathers did of the false prophets. We should all stay out of the jerks for Jesus rut, but it's probably good life advice to also stay out of the false prophets rut. Let's do both. And this is why, this is why all the Christians in the room desperately need to hear the gospel preached every week. Every single week, it's because we're all failures in need of his grace. We all jack this up. I need his past work, and I need his present work in me. How about you? What has God called you to that for fear of man issues you haven't acted on yet? I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing. That's a, that's a time for you to respond to God's word this morning. Let's, let's put some action to it. Our God is gracious and patient with us, so let's repent of sin this morning and do something about it. Let's get going. Maybe you need to respond in some other kind of way. Uh, respond to God's word. Maybe you need to, to, to re respond by being obedient in baptism. Or maybe it's to join this church family. Or maybe it's to, to say yes to the call of missions that God is laying out in front of you. That's a great way to respond this morning too. If you're watching this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, man, man I'm glad that you hung out with us today. I really am. You can respond to God's word this morning too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. 
Your sin, like, like JB talked about at the beginning of our time, your sin separates you from God. It deserves his wrath. But Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. And he died on the cross as a sinless substitute to pay the debt for the sin that you owe. And he is risen from the dead as a, as a vindication of his perfect righteousness. And so now as the conquering king, he calls you to respond to him in repentance and faith. And you can do that this morning. You can respond to the gospel's call. You can place your hope and your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. Normally I'd be standing down front here calling people to come forward as we sing. We can't do that today. We've been, that's been taken from us. But listen, that doesn't slow God down. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need me. Jesus' coming is proof that he's done with mediators. He wants to give you himself. He doesn't need me. But listen, that doesn't mean that we can't talk. That doesn't mean that we can't talk. I'd love to help you walk through what that response of faith looks like. We might all be spread out, but man, we can get creative. Try me. It could honestly, though, just be as simple as picking up a phone and giving me a call. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Matthew 10. Thank you that your gospel is not some whitewashed, saccharine nonsense, but a life change for the real world. You have called us to many things and sometimes you call us to suffer. As we walk faithfully in all the different things you've called us to us, we, we, we will definitely stand out from the rest of the world and sometimes that standing out is going to be costly. But even there, you are with us. You walk with us. Strengthen us carry us, empower us, and then eventually take us home. God, we, we want to be those who walk faithfully even in the midst of persecution. And for whatever reasons, you haven't allowed terrible things to happen here. Maybe it's because we did a good thing. Maybe it's because we're not ready. I don't know. But either way, your hand has held it back. you have promised that it will eventually come and so make us ready now prepare our hearts for it today so that when that day comes we will point people to you instead of our suffering God for those who don't know you yet would you make yourself known this morning It's crazy to think that you would save people through a message where we promise that if you follow Jesus, it might cost you. But over and over again, time and time again, you prove yourself to be better, lovelier, sweeter. You prove yourself to be the one who comforts us in the midst of pain and the one who provides everything we need for endurance. 
So God, even now, would you save people for your kingdom and for your glory? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know this morning? Would you call people to yourself? Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.